0: the following message was given by robert green on sunday september 10th at redemption hill church for more information about the church visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com if you've been with us for any period of time you know we're working our way through that wonderful letter that paul wrote to these churches um and if you're a guest with us this morning i'm glad that you're here welcome um We go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, section by section, trying to understand uh, God's intention for His people through the letter. So for the next number of weeks, you come back and join us. When I get up here, you can go ahead and just make your way to Galatians. Uh, We're going to finish up Galatians chapter 4 this morning. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read the verses for us. Then we're going to pray. And then we're going to listen to what God has for us through His word. So Galatians chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 21. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. For the children of the desolate will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as it was at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted who was born born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. What in the world does all that mean? It's a good question. It's a question I've been asking for a couple of weeks. Um, This morning, let's pray. Let's ask God to help us, help me, pray for me, and we'll see what he's got. Father, thank you again for the rich privilege we have to be together to hear your word um, Lord, in the safety and security of this place. Uh, Lord, help us to be able to settle all the thoughts, all the things that are bouncing around in our hearts and minds for our attention. And Lord, and help us to have ears to hear your voice in your word this morning. Even Peter said to the church that sometimes the things that Paul says are hard to understand this is one of those things. Lord, we're going to need your Spirit to help us to hear your voice and your intention for us this morning. Or give me words that somehow make clear and help to expose what you have for us this morning. And we ask that you would do that, that you would receive the glory, that we would receive greater joy. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What in the world is all of this about? Well, honestly, uh, chapter 4, verses 21 through 31, you could say, in a way, really is the tale of two gospels. Or if you were with us when we began the study of the book of Galatians, as Paul said, it's the story of the one true gospel, and that which really is no gospel Paul is using these verses and using these stories to draw for God's people a very clear distinction between that which is true and leads to freedom and that which is foe and can only lead to chains. And I say foe instead of false because in my mind at least, when I think of that which is true in relation to the gospel and the message of the gospel that sets us free, that by God's grace causes us to be born again against that which is false... In my mind, I think of something on the other side of a spectrum kind of like Hinduism or or Buddhism. That which has nothing to do with Christ is an entirely different message and hope altogether. But that which is faux is something on the outside looks like the real thing. It's pleasing to the eye, but underneath the surface is lacking all the sum and substance that makes it what it is. I think of something like plastic flowers. You walk into a room and from a distance, they all look the same, right? They look real. And if the object of their placement is to just look pretty, then they kind of accomplish their purpose. But if your life was dependent upon that flower, if you were some kind of insect or, or, or bee or something and your life was dependent upon that flower, that faux flower was devoid of that which makes a flower what it is, you would ultimately perish. Paul is drawing a distinction for God's people between that which is true and that which is foe. And he needs to draw the distinction because what makes it really difficult for us to see the difference between these two things is the fact that they both claim Jesus. They both on the surface in some ways seem very similar, pleasing maybe even to God. But underneath the surface, when you begin to see their differences, you find that one is ultimately enslaving to the soul. And as I thought about these verses this week and thought about what they have for us in 2017 and as God's people in this place and in this city, I began to realize in a new way that the greatest barrier to Jesus enrichment in 2017 the greatest obstacle to Jesus for people in our city, in our day, is a faux Christianity. There are a lot of things the church is pointing to that present obstacles for people to come to Christ. But the greatest obstacle for people in our day and in our city to Jesus is a faux gospel and a faux Christianity. Something that has the appearance of the real thing. Something that on the surface seems very similar even. But it's lacking the substance. It's lacking the reality. It's lacking that which makes the gospel what it is. I've encouraged you throughout the series to, to get a copy of Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians. Probably the best commentary ever written. It's extremely readable. Don't be afraid of it. And writing about this reality in his commentary... Luther said that it's the supreme art of the devil that he can make the law out of gospel. That he can make something faux out of something that's real. And so Luther said, if I can hold on to the distinction between the law and the gospel... So, Paul is going to try to create this distinction for us again between the law and the gospel, between freedom and slavery. And Luther says, if I can hold on to that distinction, if I can see it and I can grab tight onto it, Luther says that I can say to the devil any and every time that he should kiss my backside. I'm telling you, go read Luther, you're going to be surprised. Luther said, even if I sinned, I would say, should I deny the gospel on this account? If I'm not holding tight to the distinction between the truth and the foe, between the law and the gospel, Luther says, I can debate about what I've done and what I've left undone. I can find myself internally going, did I do enough? Did I not do enough? Did I do the right thing? Did I do the wrong thing? And when I do that and find myself there, Luther said, I'm finished but i can hold that distinction i can reply on the basis of the gospel the forgiveness of sins covers it all and i've won if i can hold on to the distinction if i can see it clearly in my mind if i can grip it in my heart if i can know what is true from that which is false what sets me free and what binds me in chains Then I can say, any and every time I sin and hear the whispers of the accuser, the forgiveness of sins covers it all. There's nothing else I have to do. I've won. Friends, Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31 is Paul's effort here to create that distinction between relying upon the law, relying upon works, relying upon life according to the flesh, relying upon what we can do for God, and relying solely upon what God has done for us by grace through his Son. Because if we can hold tight to that distinction, if we can hold on to it, we win. We win. So to create that distinction, to help us in this, Paul starts by asking a question. And it's a rhetorical question of of sorts. And if I could paraphrase it for us, I would try to say it this way. In light of there being a true and in light of there being a faux gospel, are you willing to examine the gospel that you've actually believed? Are you willing to actually examine that which you have believed? Verse 21, Paul asked this question, tell me, you who desire to be under the law Do you not listen to the law? You see, if you've been with us, you've heard us go over this almost every week, so it's 10 weeks like on repeat. If you're not with us, let me try to catch you up as best I can. And for those of you that have been with us, say it maybe in a way that makes it fresh again. Paul is dealing with something happening in this church where a group of teachers have come into these churches Paul had preached the gospel there. They had heard the gospel. They had received the gospel by faith. They had been set free by the grace of God. They were living together as God's people, enjoying the grace of God. And these teachers came in when Paul had gone on to go somewhere else and they began to teach these churches, yes and amen in Jesus. Jesus died for your sins. You must believe in Jesus for salvation, but to be assured of who you are before God, for your identity and place in this world, to be grounded in your relationship with God, to be secure. Here are other things you need to do. Yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but you need to do these things too. And this church was being tossed. These churches were being tossed to and fro. And Paul said they were on the edge of destruction, destruction rather than their assurance of their relationship with God. That which every heart in here longs for to be assured, to know that we're okay, for our identity to be secure, rather than those things being deepened and solidified and strengthened through an ongoing relationship with God, the one who had created them, the one who had saved them, the one who gave them access to him by his son, rather than deepening their assurance and their confidence by relating to God, they were beginning to ground those things, who they are, their relationship with God on what they were doing and how well they could do it and whether they had done enough or whether there was more they needed to do. We're not much different. Now, Not many of us might keep a list of things that we think we have to do to know that God will love us. You might not have a list in the back of your Bible that you mark off how many times you went to church on Sunday, how many different Bible studies you went to and how many times you prayed and how many times you read the Bible and how long you prayed for and how long you read the Bible for and you've got to hit a certain quarter to know that God will be pleased with you and if you don't, then you've got to figure out what else you've got to do to make up the difference and close the gap on it. You might not live that way, but here's the thing. If our sense of identity our sense of assurance of our relationship with God, our sense of righteousness, right standing before God is solidified and strengthened and grounded in the ongoing relationship we have with God, then we need to pay attention because for you and I in 2017, we don't do relationships very well. My wife has helped me better than anyone else understand this in relation to this text. In our day and age, we don't do relationships very well. They take a lot of work. And we don't often put the kind of work into our relationships with one one another that they require. So rather than our sense of standing with one another coming from the, the time that we spend with one another, the relationship we have, the sacrifices we make, how we relate to each other, we tend to look back and go, well, I should be okay with that person because of all that I've done. Look at all that I've done for you. They just need to be okay with me. Or on the other side... You look at someone and go, well, what have you done for me lately? Why? Because understanding our standing, understanding our righteousness in that relationship, understanding our place in it, our identity in it, is much easier and more quantifiable based on what we do. We can see that a whole lot easier. And if that's the case with each other, how much more so with God? I mean, in the first century, these people they understood relationship and interdependence with one another in a way that you and I can't begin to fathom. Their life together with each other literally meant life or death at times. How they cared for each other, Their subsistence and their very well-being was tied up in their community with each other. And if it was easy for them who understood relationship like that to pull away from their sense of identity and well-being with God, being grounded in their relationship with Him and go to what they could do for Him, how much easier for you and I to find ourselves in the same position beginning to ground our sense of identity, our sense of place in this world, our sense of rightness with God and standing before him, not so much in a deepening relationship with him that defines for us who we are and who he is that shapes us, but in what we can see ourselves doing for him. Our zeal for particular things that we know might bring him joy. Friends, Paul says, if if you want to live that way, If you want to rely upon the law, he says, but rely upon your best effort to be the grounding locus of your relationship with God and your assurance and your security with God, are you willing to actually take that all the way through? Have you actually heard what the law actually says? If you would actually think about that which you have received, you will again see, if you think it all the way through, the law can never do anything but make you a better slave. Relying upon the flesh, it can never make you anything but a better slave. The law, relating your, building your relationship with God, your assurance before God, your identity with God upon what you do, how well you do it or don't do it, can never, has never, and will never create born again free children of God. It just makes better slaves. So to drive that point home, to create this distinction that we've got to hold on to, Paul goes back to a story in Genesis. And this is where it begins to get confusing for folk. We start to read about two sons and two mothers that mean two covenants from two mountains. And what Paul is doing is trying to create that difference between that which is true and that which is foe. If anything, if I was more visual than I actually am, you could see what Paul's saying begin to form two columns one that's true, one that's false. Paul is trying to help the church see this distinction that the whole idea of something like God helps those who help themselves or God's grace is sufficient for all I need, they're not just two ways of thinking about something, they're two entirely different religions altogether. One will lead to freedom. One leads to nothing but despair and slave. So listen to what he says. Let's trust God to help us try to make this thing clear. I want you just to hear Paul make the distinction because we've got to hold on to it. Verse 22, Paul says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So, Paul's going back to the beginning of the story of promise. Paul's been there a few times. If you've been with us in the series, we've gone back to Abraham multiple times because these men that came into these churches must have been building part of their argument against Paul and his message by going back to the story of Abraham. So, Paul keeps going back there to refute what they're saying. But the gist of the story that he's going to is this. God came to a man named Abram. You'll eventually come to know him as Abraham. And God made the single most remarkable promise to this man, Abraham. God promised Abraham that through his offspring, through his children, God would bless every nation on earth. All the nations on the earth would be blessed through the offspring of this man, Abraham. When God says that one child was born of the promise this promise that, God is, that Paul is talking about is this promise that God made to Abraham to bless the nations through his offspring that through his offspring would come the long-awaited Messiah. It is a way of talking about God's plan of redemption and salvation. It is the most expansive and remarkable of promises you could ever imagine being given. Through your kids, I am going to bless every nation on earth but what makes it even more remarkable than the expansiveness is the reality of how it was gonna happen. God gave this promise to Abraham who was married to a woman named Sarah who at that time were well beyond the biological age of having children. We'll come to find that they're in their late 80s at this point and that when they were in the prime years for having children, They weren't able to have kids. They currently have no offspring. So not only were they not able to have children when it seemed most biologically possible, now they find themselves in a stage in life where it's the least biologically possible and God says the entire world is gonna be blessed. My plan of redemption is gonna come through your children. Unbelievable. And the whole point of the promise was this. What I am promising is entirely beyond anything you're ever going to be able to do in your own strength. You could never accomplish what I am promising to do. That was the point. Now, if you know the story, and they know the story when they were hearing this, Abraham and Sarah believed God in the promise, but as time went on, Their confidence in who God was and his willingness to keep his promise to them, their relationship with him, that relationship was meant to drive that confidence in God deeper and deeper and deeper. But they became impatient. I don't know exactly what they were thinking, but maybe they were thinking something along the lines of, you know what, God is looking for us to do something to show him how serious we are to what he said, right? I know God said this and God promised this and I don't necessarily not believe that he won't do that, but maybe he's looking for us to do something to show him how serious we are about what he said. So as the impatience begins to grow, Sarah, Abraham's wife, takes her maidservant, Hagar, who was a young Egyptian woman and she gives him to Abraham, her husband, and Abraham and Hagar have a son. His name was Ishmael. And Ishmael, the son of Abraham with Hagar, the slave woman, in some sense, if you think about it as an analogy, is the picture of what Abraham was able to accomplish in his own strength. The promise of God was something that Abraham could never accomplish in his own strength. The birth of Ishmael to Abraham and Hagar was a picture of what Abraham was able to accomplish in his own strength. So in Genesis chapter 17, when God comes back to Abraham and he renews that promise to Abraham of what he had said in the beginning, that through your offspring, all the nations on the earth will be blessed, Abraham cries out to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Look, look, God, I've got a son, let's go. You said through my offspring, all the nations on the earth will be blessed. I didn't quite know when that was gonna happen. So we went ahead and did this because maybe this is what you were looking for. So here we are, let's roll, I got a son. But God said, that's not the child of the promise that I made you. The promise was dependent upon what only I could do. Ishmael, that's a reflection of what you're capable of. He's not the child of the promise. God did keep his word. Abraham's wife at the ripe young age of 90 did give birth to a son. And his name was Isaac. So now Abraham has two sons. Ishmael and Isaac. One was born according to the promise. One was born as a proxy for the promise. One was born free. One was born a slave and will always be a slave. Two sons, one father, two mothers. One according to the promise by faith. One according to what he could accomplish in his own strength. So one commentator says at this point we realize that Ishmael and Isaac represent two entirely different approaches to religion. This is the distinction like Luther was talking about. Two entirely different approaches to religion. Law against grace. Flesh against spirit. Self-reliance against divine dependence. What can I do in myself for God? What can I do that makes me feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to do? What can I do that relies upon me to make sure that I'm secure with this? And what can I do except depend? That he is who he says he is and he will do what he said he will do and he has done all that he has promised. It's not two different ideas. It's two different religions altogether. And these two sons are the fruit of two different ways to respond to God's promised salvation. The promise that God made, it was conditional on God himself. Only God could accomplish it. All Abram had to do was believe. Friends, you and I, when it comes to God's promised salvation, our contribution to what God has promised is to do nothing but believe. Believe to take all the chips that we have in our life, push them all across the table onto who he is and what he's done to bet everything that we are and are we ever will be onto all that he is for us in his son by his grace and by his spirit. That's our contribution. We'll see more clearly later on. It's a unilateral grace and work of God to save the soul of a man. And God intends for our confidence, for our faith, for our assurance to solidify and deepen through an ongoing relationship with him that he has made possible through the work of his son. That our sense of who we are, our sense of our place, our sense of his pleasure with us, our sense of our standing with him, it's meant to grow more secure and it's meant to grow more solid and go deeper in our heart as we relate to him. But here's the thing, relationships are hard. It's hard. How do I know just how deep it's going? Am I doing enough? So all of a sudden, very subtly, what happens? We don't deny the work of God by grace in Christ alone for our salvation, but we begin to go, you know what? It's easier for me to know that I'm going the right way, that I'm doing the right things, that I'm headed in the right direction, that I'm really assured of what he said about me and what he's done for me by how I'm doing these things over here. So all of a sudden, here we go, very subtly and very quietly, beginning to ground our sense of standing and identity with God on what we're doing, how zealously we're doing it what things we're against, how voraciously we're against those things, what things bring him to light, how much can I go do them, all of a sudden, very subtly, without denying what he's done for us in his son, we begin to build all that assurance and all that identity, all that justification and all that righteousness on what we're doing, how well we're doing it, and our insecurity and how poorly we're doing it. Friends, Paul's point, the whole time, this whole letter, Paul's point here. No one can be born again, be born free, by relying on those works of the flesh, by relying on our performance. And so to try to make it even more clear, and it becomes about as clear as mud as you begin to read it, Paul goes back to the story in verse 24. Now this, he says, may be interpreted allegorically. Now, we're not gonna spend a lot of time on this. This deserves an entire class, an entire time in and of itself and how we read the Bible. But when Paul says this can be interpreted allegorically, the way they understood allegory when Paul was talking about it is much closer to the way you and I understand analogy. Allegory, as we understand it, like the Pilgrim's Progress, came out of medieval thinking and medieval time and understanding. Our understanding of what an allegory is in literature. When Paul's talking about allegory here, the way that they understood it back then, it was much more like analogy. You take something real, you take something true, and you apply it to a principle or a situation over here. So when you read this in verse 24, don't begin to think for a moment that Paul looks back on Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Hagar and says it's all an allegory. It's not real. That's not what he's saying. It's real. But what God was doing there, he can take and apply to a principle he's trying to communicate here. And in doing this, he's trying again to build that comparison between what's true, and what's faux, what you hold on to, and what you've got to let go of. So in verse 24, Paul says, Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. Here's the analogy. Here's the picture. Here are the two columns, the two distinctions. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery, she is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and she corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she's in slavery with her children. So now we've got one column on the chart. We've got Hagar, we've got Mount Sinai, we've got Ishmael, we've got the present Jerusalem. What does all that mean? Well, on Mount Sinai, God made his initial covenant with his people, the covenant of law. God gave his 10 commandments, God gave his law to his people. And the blessing of that covenant would come to God's people as they were obedient. And in their disobedience, the curses of the law would come upon them. Paul says that when we think about this story and we try to build this description, let's use an analogy. Hagar and Ishmael, the son of what Abraham could do in his own strength, represent that covenant that God made with his people that was dependent upon their obedience. So all of present day Jerusalem, all of Paul's fellow Jews and Israelites who were believing upon the law and the works of the law and their performance before God to be the foundation of their relationship with God are sons of Hagar. They're Ishmael. They're enslaved. And you've got to understand, in Paul's day, when this would have been read in the churches, people would have stood up and started making noise. Back in that day, it wasn't like sit down right here, listen to me talk, hope that I get done soon, get up and go out. Back then the room was split and they were actually facing each other and the middle was actually open. And what would happen, it was a lot like Parliament, British Parliament, if you ever watched it on on TV, they would stand up and they would argue. People would get from one part of the room and walk to another part of the room when they agreed or disagreed. They'd be talking with each other and then when something was said up front they disagreed with, they'd stand up and shout it down. They'd go back and forth. So when this was read, there would have been people that would have stood up and started making noise and arguing because what Paul just said is that what you have begun to believe, what these teachers have been telling you, yes, and amen with Jesus, but you need to go and show God just how serious you are if you're really going to know that He loves you. You need to show God just how serious you are in your obedience to His law in order to be assured of His love for you forever and your identity as His child. Paul just said, rather than claiming to be sons of Abraham, like sons of Sarah and Isaac of God's chosen people, you're sons of Hagar you're enslaved. You're actually the very people you despise the most. Friends, it has always been a primary tool of the enemy to make God's people feel like there is this acceptable level of obedience out here in the distance And if we can just work hard enough and do enough and figure out the path to that acceptable level of obedience, then we'll know we're okay. It's like that dream. I don't know if you've ever had it where you're drowning, but you're only like four inches below the surface of the water. But no matter how hard you try, you can't seem to get up there. You can see the sun. You can see the light. You know it's right there, but you can't figure it out. He holds this thing out here that begins to help us or begins to get us to believe that there's some acceptable standard out here that we have to attain before we can know everything is okay. That there's this idealized Christian version of ourselves just over the horizon that we have to get to. Paul says that's slavery. The children of God's promise can never be born, Paul says, through the Hagar of the law. The law only produces children of slavery. Ishmael, never children of freedom. Friends, God wants us to see that our obedience, doing that which he delights in, doing that which he commands for his glory and our joy, that's not legalism but obedience to that which delights God is also, has never been and will never be a strategy of God's intention to make us his sons. It's not legalism to obey his word. It becomes dangerous for our soul when we think our obedience is what makes us who we are. When it becomes the foundation for our sense of identity and assurance, that leads to nothing but slavery. Slavery rather paul says verse 26 the jerusalem above is free she's our mother as one commentator put in his commentary the crucial portion the crucial point at this the crucial question at this point is not whether abraham is your father but who is your mother are you born of the promise of god like isaac Is your life a testimony to the miracle of God's grace at work in you, taking that which was dead and making it alive? Or like Ishmael, is your life a testimony to what you can accomplish in your own strength? See, the distinction Paul is trying to draw comes down to this. New life, being born again, freedom everlasting and abiding joy. That is the work of God's grace alone. It's the unilateral work of God's grace in the heart of a man. It's what God does. It's not what we can accomplish. That's why Paul quotes Isaiah 54 in verse 27. Verse 27, Paul says, it's written, and he's going back to Isaiah 54. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. So there's a picture of a woman who who we'll see in a moment doesn't have a husband, and she's childless, and she can't have children. And in this day and age, that woman would have been sitting at the gate of the city in sackcloth and ashes, and the prophet says, the word of the Lord comes to her, and it comes to the prophet and says, rejoice. You who do not bear, you break forth and cry, you who are not in labor. Why? For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Paul is going back to that prophecy to point directly to the reversal of fortune that comes by only the grace of God alone. Desolate to fruitful, despair to joy. It happens by the unilateral grace of God in someone's heart. This is the distinction Paul is trying to make and trying to drive home. Living life relying upon yourself, your zeal, your passion, your obedience for security, for identity, for a sense of right standing or justification with God and with others leads to slavery. Never to this kind of joy and freedom. It's only the work of God's grace that leads to freedom and joy. Two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, two mothers, Hagar and Sarah, Represent two different covenants and two different ways of responding to God's promise of salvation. And although on the surface, there are things about them that seem very similar, kind of like what's real and what's faux, both being sons of Abraham, underneath the surface, they're two fundamentally different sons. And in Paul's analogy here, they represent two entirely different religions one that leads to freedom, one that leads to slavery one that's true, and one that's false. Friends, God wants us to hold fast to these distinctions. Now what Paul says next in verse 28, really through the end of verse 31, has become one of the more tangibly emotional sections of this letter for me as we've been going through it and it's never been that way before. And our regulations, this isn't the first time I've read regulations. What Paul says here has meant more to me this week when I think about us than I think any other time I've ever read it. Listen to what Paul says. Now, all right, now. So he's drawing their attention back away from what he was just saying and the analogy and the distinction he was making. Now, you, all right? So he's talking to God's people. You, brothers. This is who we are. This is who you are, okay? Now, you, brothers. Back then and now, easily drifting into this faux sense of justification and righteousness. Easily drifting into believing that your identity and your assurance and your security is better represented in what you're doing rather than what God's done for you and what he says about you. Now you listen. Listen. Like Isaac, you are children of promise. Verse 31, you are not children of the slave. You're children of the free woman. What is Paul trying to get us to focus on now? He's made the distinction between that which is true and that which is false. What is Paul wanting us to hold on to now? Paul is directing our attention squarely back onto who we are in Christ, who we are in God's eyes. Paul takes us back to the most fundamental reality of who we are because of God's grace. Why? Because who we are dictates how we live. Listen, he says, family, this is who you are. Not, hey, now in light of what's true and what's false, here's what you need to go do. Not this is real, this isn't real, now go do this to prove it. No, come back to what's really important. This is who you are. Who you are should dictate how you live. You've forgotten who you are. You've drifted over here into trying to establish your sense of identity in what you're doing. No, you need to go back to who you are. This is the most fundamental thing about you. And this became very important for me. I'm trying to find the right word for it when I think about us right now because of this. In our day and age, 2017, Richmond, Virginia, the mood of our current day is one of critique and one of deconstruction. And what I mean by that is this, everyone, including the church, we're not immune from this and we're not immune from it in this church. Everyone has a very well-developed sense of what and who they're against. Do you understand that? The mood of our day is one of who we're against and what we're against. But do you know what's missing in the whole thing? What's missing is a well developed and well articulated sense of who we really are. We speak and we think in emotionally charged and very organized and articulate ways regarding what we're against and who and what we want to remove, who and what we should distance ourselves from, who and what we should get away from, who's right and who's wrong. Very well articulated, very well developed sense of how to take something down and critique and deconstruct things. But here's the thing it's true of the church. We do not have and have not spent much time in a well developed and well articulated sense of who we are and what that means for the life that we're meant to live. Paul goes back to this and says, this is who you are. Let me take you back to who you are because who you are is meant to define and shape how you live this life and how you respond to the things of this life. You have to understand fundamentally who you are. We talk about it all the time around here and people can spit out all the categories of different identities that are ours in the gospel through the Bible. Yes and amen, but have you spent any time before the Lord, prayerfully in relationship with him, allowing him to develop in your heart a fundamentally rich sense of who you are by his grace. That you might say, this is what I'm about. This is what's true, this is what's good, this is what's beautiful in this family. This is what I'm for, this is what we're for, this is what we're about. As we talk about in our house, this is our yes, this is our yes because of who we are. Paul says, Brothers, family, friends, we're children of the promise. Criticism is easy. Deconstruction is easy. It's never been easier than it is now because of technology. Everybody's opinions and emotionally charged rants masquerading as wisdom out there on the computer. It's horrible. And the church is just as guilty. We know everything we're against. But what are we for as God's children? Heirs of the promise. Sons. When was the last time that that was the framework by which we understood what we were going to do or how we were going to respond to something? Friends, we've got a well-developed sense of what we're against, but how developed in our heart is our sense of who we are? How developed in our hearts is our sense of our identity because of God's grace? See, that comes. That gets strengthened. That goes deeper into the heart through ongoing relationship with him. And that's hard. Relationship is difficult. And so it becomes much easier to try to find those things, to find that sense of identity, to find that sense of assurance, find that sense of security and what we're doing for him. It's more comfortable at times as well. But when that begins to happen, we're drifting into this faux sense of freedom that ultimately leads, like Paul says, to nothing but chains. Friends, this is, This, (laughs) this is the genesis of so much tension and conflict in the church. When we drift into this slavery again in our own lives, we quickly look for people to take with us. this is what Paul says in verse 29. Just as at the time when he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Jacob, so also is it now Friends, when God's grace exposes our inner legalism, when our sense of justification that has shifted away from what God has done for us in his son and has begun to be built upon what we're doing and how well we're doing it or what we're against and how, how zealous we were against it, when that begins to be that which defines us and gives sense of identity and the gospel exposes it, you know what happens? And the claws come out. Because this is the thing I'm building my sense of identity and confidence and superiority upon. And when it gets exposed as being inferior, watch out. This is the genesis of so much tension and conflict. That's why I love, again, no one can say it like Piper. You need to understand, you are a person of tremendous destiny. And the devil will tempt you to both spectacular sins and to a trivial identity. He'll tempt you to go back to trying to build credit with God as if Jesus died for nothing. The devil will tempt you this way, he'll tempt you that way. Indulging in bad things and trying to earn good things. He doesn't care what you choose as long as you stop praising Jesus and go back to being a slave on his land. If I could sum it all up, In one sentence, I would try to do it this way. There is no Christianity so dead as Christianity built on your strength. Why? Because it's Christianity without Christ. It's a faux gospel. It's the greatest obstacle to Jesus in our city, in our time. What Paul is trying to say and drive home with the distinction is that the true gospel of God's grace and sufficiency cannot coexist in your heart or in the church with a faux gospel. They are two entirely different religions. One writer said, there's an ocean of room in the Christian faith for diverse people to paddle around and figure out what to think. But all forms of self-made superiority, whether they dress up in liberal or conservative clothes, cannot coexist with the grace of Christ crucified for helpless sinners. That's why you look around. Just look at the people next to you. To use Brennan Manning's words, we are a -a ragamuffin bunch of people. Young and old, conservative, liberal, wealthy, less wealthy, the scope of difference in the room here now, or if we got us all together from all three services, is enormous. But the reason that we enjoy being together in the freedom that we experience those differences in is because what unites us when we gather is Jesus, not anything else. So, brothers, family, we're not children of the slave. We're children of the free woman. God wants you to know who you are. In Christ, you are his. In Christ, he is yours. In Christ, you are free. And your sense of assurance and your sense of identity and your sense of confidence grows as your relationship with him deepens. God is not saying to you in any way, shape, form or fashion, that His son's death and resurrection in your place for your sin covered 99 percent of what you owe. And now you've got to figure out how to close that one percent gap. Paul wants you to understand as clearly as humanly possible what Jesus said in John 1930 is true. It's finished. It's done. And by the grace of God, for those who have tasted that freedom, you're in. There's nothing else for you to do. You're free. You get to enjoy him and enjoy his grace. You get to come to him, rely upon him, rest in him, know him. And as you do that, that assurance your heart is so desperate for That identity you so desperately need is rooted and established and strengthened in what he's done and what he says about you. And you're free from having to do anything to try to earn it from him. Friends, this reality is not just what we proclaim and that which we believe, but it's what we celebrate every single time we gather together on a Sunday morning, not just through the preaching of the word, but in a moment by responding to God's word, by receiving communion together. When we come forward, those who have tasted of the grace of God and repentance and the forgiveness of sin and take bread, remembering the body of Jesus broken and dip it into the cup, remembering the blood of Christ poured out for our forgiveness, we're celebrating the yes and amen of God doing for us the miraculous promise that he made way back when to Abraham, the unilateral work of grace for us that we could never accomplish for ourselves. We get to respond to the certainty of God's promise to us in his son. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to give you a couple of moments to reflect, to deal with God. Let him deal with you. And then, together, as God's people, we are going to respond to God's promise by receiving communion, celebrating the yes and amen that Jesus is for us. We'll sing, we'll be sent out to be God's people here in the place that he's called us. So let me pray and then we'll respond. Father, we thank you this morning that Lord, you expose in our hearts the places where where we fall susceptible to lies and distortions of that which is true. It looks good on the outside, but it only leads to slavery and death. God, I know, and this is what I rest in, that while some things may seem complicated and sound difficult, regardless of what I say with my mouth, your spirit and the hearts of your people can do more work and expose more truth in any way that I could ever do it. So God, I ask for your glory and our greater joy. Lord, you would help us to see the truth of the freedom that is ours and your grace to us through your son and help us to put away all the pseudo, all the faux ways that we try to earn our righteousness or ground our identity or justification in something other than your son. Lord, help us to run from those things, to cast those things away, get away. Let us run to the secure strength of your arms. Lord, we ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.